electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in last call, a Tesla Uber bull turning even more bullish. Dan Ives is here. So-called Fang stocks had a monster year, but a top tech watcher says you may not believe how high two of them can go next year. It may be the holidays, but it's been a busy week for insider stock buys. We've got our exclusive list with some new names for you. Calling their shot, the Dodgers spending $1 billion on just a couple of players, but will it buy a World Series? We'll break down the odds. Plus... Our Beat the Books picks for a huge NFL weekend ahead in our Friday segment, Booze You Can Use. It is the black-owned wine label that is so good, it's attracting some big-time investors. All that and more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. Happy Friday, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. All that and more ahead. But first up on this live, and yeah, we are live. Last call, the Santa Claus rally. Not even the Grinch could ruin this remarkable run. All three major indexes posting their eighth straight winning week. And here's some fodder to make you sound at a cocktail party this weekend. This is the Dow and the Nasdaq's longest win streak in more than four years. But for the S&P... It is now the longest weekly winning streak in more than six years. Wow. And at 4,755, the index is now a percent away from its all-time high. The S&P 500 hitting that level was pretty much unthinkable to almost everyone at the beginning of the year. In fact, pretty much every strategist got it really, really wrong. To start the year, Deutsche Bank had an S&P 500 target of 4,500. That's actually not bad. J.P. Morgan was at 4,200, and Bank of America, Citigroup, and Goldman Sachs predicted the S&P 500 would only be at 4,000 to end this year. They've, of course, revised those up since then, but those were their targets at the beginning of the year, and we are now an amazing 18% above those levels. So pretty much everyone got it wrong, except for that guy. Fundstrat's Tom Lee, a.k.a. the Oracle of Optimism, a.k.a. the guy who got it right, a.k.a. Tom Lee, not the drummer. He predicted the S&P 500 would end the year at 4,750. That means that if the S&P folks falls just a tiny five points next week, we got four days of trading left in the year, Tom could literally be exactly right. Wouldn't that be something? So let's bring in Tom, who, you know, you can smile. It's kind of your, the Tom Lee version of a smile, but, you, you know, you got it really right. And the basic question is how? What did you see that all these really nice, by the way, but really highly paid and really wrong strategists at the big houses got, got it wrong? Uh, hi, Brian. Thanks for that intro. Um, I think there were two things that we dif- we were different from the street. The first is we didn't think inflation would take a year, take a decade to defeat. 
I think many were bracing for 10 years of Fed fighting inflation so stocks would get stuck. And the second was because of the inverted yield curve, many were predicting a hard landing in 2023. Our view was that inflation was going to fall like a rock this year and the Fed therefore could take its foot off the fight and that economic resilience and the fact that companies were bracing for this storm of hikes actually could avoid a recession. And so I, I think that kept us optimistic and that stocks would look like 1982 and rebound to all-time highs very but, quickly, which it looks like it's happened. Uh, so again, not to be little, but, but why did you think that inflation was going to drop? Because if that is the basis of your thesis, others also got that wrong. What did you see in the data that made you think when things were just cooking inflation-wise the beginning of the year that they would slow down? Uh, well, Brian, it's, it's a little, uh, what, what, what our team did was we rejiggered inflation and, and identified that 86% of all this rise in core inflation was coming from housing and cars, including the fact that super core was rising. Almost all that was auto insurance, auto repair, auto leasing. So we, we realized that this was all just following goods pricing, that car prices were set to fall and that would pull down inflation. It looks like that's kicking in now. And that housing just needed to get towards a 3 to 4% annualized rate, and that would get you back to where you need to be to get to 2% core inflation. So our view is it's not about travel and it's not about health insurance. It's really about cars and housing getting back to normal. And, and that's the trajectory we've been seeing. I, I think the market's recognizing that view, but we, we spent most of the last 18 months arguing that view. What are you looking at for next year, Tom? I think it's going to feel uh, like a lot of tailwinds coming together because we know the Fed is going to be supportive, uh, managing the business cycle instead of fighting inflation. And we, we've identified reasons for capital spending to pick up next year, including that huge gap between soft and hard data. And that should lead to EPS surprise. And then mortgage rates, we think, could drop towards low fives, maybe even fours next year. And that would be stimulative to the consumer. So it, to me, it feels like it could be an early cycle year that really benefits financials and small caps. But you don't see S&P, the S&P 500 gaining another 20%, do you? Uh, it's possible, um, but that's not our base case. You know, we think it's going to gain at least 10% towards 5,200, but it, it probably means you first consolidate a lot of this parabolic rise in the first half. You know, so maybe we fall to 4,300, but then we rally pretty hard into 5,200 by year end. But you think that small caps could outperform the large caps next year? Did I hear you right? That's right. Yeah, I think small caps might even just rise every month next year because uh, on a price to book basis, they're back to 1999 levels relative to the S&P. And that was a launch point where small caps outperformed for 12 consecutive years. So I, I think we're entering a period where small caps and market breadth are going to expand. And that's going to be good for stock pickers because they can buy companies they like and, and you're going to have a, a decent earnings backdrop as well. Yeah, there's a lot of companies out there. And I'm, we, we're not allowed to own individual companies. I can own index funds and, and ETFs and mutual funds. That's pretty much about it. But when I look at some of these screeners that I'll do just on my because I'm bored and I'm boring, I'm like, man, there's a lot of seemingly really good growth companies that are trading at like four times earnings in small caps. That's Completely right. just left on the trash heap. That's right. I mean, the money's been star uh, equities have been starved of inflows. You know, retail investors pulled money out of stocks this year. And in fact, the S&P X Fang is trading at 15 times forward earnings. I mean, that itself is a pretty reasonable multiple. But then when you look at the S&P 600, which is a 
the small cap index, you know, you're at 12 times. So you're, you're absolutely right. Small caps are pretty attractive. Tom Lee, 4750, five points to the drop, and you'd be exactly right. But either way, Tom, you nailed it. You had a great year. Hopefully your clients did well as well, and we appreciate you coming on, on last call, Tom. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. All right, very much. All right. So you know the markets overall did great this week and the last couple of weeks. Let's get to your studs and duds of the week. The S&P 500's biggest winner, Ansys, that was pretty much all today, reports they may sell the synopsis. Moderna, actually, they've got a uh, positive results for a skin cancer treatment. And Illumina backing out of their $7 purchase for a cancer screening company. The big decliners. FedEx, I wonder if that's a canary in the coal mine. FedEx down almost 12% this week. Nike, again, consumer name, down 11%. Warner Brothers Discovery, down 8%. Reports they could potentially be talking to merge with Paramount. We'll talk more about that potential as well with Laura Martin coming up in a couple of minutes. All right, we are just getting started on this live last call. And up next, Big Tech wrote a rocket this year. And Laura Martin says two names could make you even more dough next year. Plus, if you thought that Wedbush's Dan Ives could not get more bullish on Tesla, you'd be wrong. He's here with one of his boldest calls yet. Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. All right, let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the headlines that you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow morning and on a Saturday. Tonight, we're going to be talking about OpenAI. According to Bloomberg, OpenAI is currently in talks to raise new funding. We would value the company at more than $100 billion. I feel like I need to put my pinky to the side of my mouth when I do that. Details and timing of this next round of funding have not been finalized, but it could cement the company as one of the world's most valuable startups, second only to Elon Musk's SpaceX in the United States. All right, in the meantime, it's been a good year for the FANG stocks. Meta is up nearly 200% since January. Apple, about 50%. Amazon, 82 Netflix, 65 And Alphabet, 60 I mean, those are unreal gains. But which, which of those names should you either add to your portfolio next year or if you own them, keep them? Let's take it to Needham, senior research analyst Laura Martin, and get her take on the best picks of the group for the upcoming year. Laura, I know it's Friday before Christmas, so thank you so much for coming on. What are your, if you had to pick two of those names, who would they be? 
So we would go with Google, which is also called Alphabet, and we would go with Amazon. Google, because we think political is going to be a huge ad year, which benefits Google, as well as we expect a rebound in auto advertising, film and television advertising, because there won't be strikes in 2024 anymore, and uh, in travel advertising. All of those should feed into Google's sort of 70% profit margin business, which should over-deliver earnings per share. Um, similarly, Amazon, very interesting story next year. We think that what it's doing is pivoting from being a consumer-facing company, and that has fourth lawsuit from the FTC, to being a sort of business-to-business back-end infrastructure company with logistics and shipping, where it sort of takes a fee of every other thousands of companies' mm-hmm. um, fulfillment plus cloud And we're really optimistic about generative AI. We think generative AI will be the headline that you are the most, everyone is the most sick of by the end of next year. Oh, you just heard the open AI. And I know it's going to be, we say AI, open AI, chat GPT. Open AI is the parent company of chat GPT. Google's got their own. Uh, There's all these competitors out there. Is there a way, when we talk about Google slash Alpha, I can't, I still can't call it Alphabet. I'm sorry. We talk about Google, Laura. Is there a way to value how much YouTube is worth? If, if YouTube were, and YouTube kids were just spun out, how big would they be? Right. So we value YouTube every single um, every single quarter, and we itemize everything that was said about YouTube for eight quarters running. We just pull out what they say about YouTube. And so the answer is yes, we value it every quarter. It's between if it was separately tradable, even if they just spun off 10% of it, we think YouTube alone would be be worth three fifty to four hundred billion dollars by itself, standalone. Wow! You think that could ever could that ever happen? And would if they did it, would it unlock value at Alphabet, or is Alphabet more valuable with YouTube just tucked nicely in there? No, I, I actually think um, the I think the management at Google is suboptimal. So I think putting public shareholder. Um, like uh, focus on smaller and smaller bits of Google is actually better for the performance of the management teams. Why why are they suboptimal? Because I think like, I I think this whole race for generative AI. So let's make clear the old AI had 10,000 inputs. This generative AI stuff, which uses large language models like OpenAI and ChatGPT, 1 trillion inputs. Okay, Google has a bunch of these. They were ahead by five years, Brian, in this generative AI stuff except ChatGPT beat them to market. Mm. That's bad, Brian. People shouldn't just be sitting around employing geniuses to not actually bring a product to market, my opinion. Fair point. Uh, Quickly, can't let you go. You said recently that if Paramount doesn't find a suitor, it's toast, probably won't, you know, bankrupt perhaps. You think a Warner Brothers Discovery deal is going to happen? I do. In 2024, I think it's the best case outcome for both of them. Very few. So long as there is a Democrat in the presidency, no, Amazon and Apple cannot buy Paramount. They are already too big. And Comcast and Disney can't buy Paramount because they already own broadcasters and Paramount owns CBS. And by law, you can't own two broadcasters. If the deal happens, would one plus one equal two or one plus one equal one and a half? I think one plus one would equal three because I think they'd cut costs. And they'd have a lot of negotiating leverage with every distribution form because they'd Mm -hmm. have a broadcaster and they'd have about 60 percent of total viewing on linear TV, which is dying. But really, you got to pay them because otherwise, what are you distributing if you're Comcast? You have to pay them whatever they want. Comcast, great company, by the way. We'll talk about that next time you're on. Laura, Laura, our parent company, of course. Laura Martin, Needham, have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Laura. Appreciate it. All right. Still ahead. Call him the Tesla bull who will not be tamed. 
Wedbush's Dan Ives just out with a big call on the EV maker for next year. He joins us in studio, snazzed up with some nice kicks. Dan Ives, we'll see you after the commercial break. Somebody get this man a chair. Picture this. You're on a John Deere compact tractor, enjoying the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. I mean, how could we not? That is the Christmas tree at Rock Center. That is a live look at all those people down there ice skating, having hot chocolate, maybe an adult beverage with their friends. We're working. Winning. Anyway, all right. Let's move on to the market, everybody. And by the way, happy Christmas Eve, Eve, Eve. All right, let's talk Tesla. Tesla, pretty incredible run this year, more than doubling its value since January. And some think it'll only go higher next year. Top tech analyst and Tesla bull, Dan Ives, out with a new note saying Tesla will hit a $1 trillion market cap in the upcoming year. And he's raising his price target on the stock to $350 from $310. He is here in person, Dan. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great to be uh, here. A lot of people coming at you on social media about this price target, even if they're saying, well, Tesla sucks. They're coming at you from a fundamental perspective, saying, I, I, I can't do the math and the earnings, the valuation. How do you get to 350 Tesla is where Apple was in 2008, 2009. In terms of the sum of the parts and the software piece, this is just starting, what I've used, the next phase of the Tesla growth story hits starting in 2024. And at this point, from electric vehicles, they're doubling down where others are peeling back. I think units, I think margins actually start to increase. I think this is going to be a golden year for Tesla. At the end of the year, I expect them to be above a trillion dollars. Well, uh, Gordon Johnson, obviously a bear on Tesla. You know, and Gordon's a great guy. He comes on the show. He hasn't been right on, on it, but he might, he might be at some point. We don't know. Uh, he says, he wrote on X, margins and earnings are imploding. Global market shares down. And there's articles claiming that Tesla knowingly sold faulty vehicles. Yeah, and then look, to, to his points, what I would say here is that, first off, this is a, not an auto company. It's a disruptive technology company. That's why, from a valuation perspective, I think this is a stock that could be at 40 50% in 2024 mm. because people want a Tesla. Maybe they don't want an EV. They want a Tesla, as you who talk said, about. Well, say, who, as, who as, said as, that? As, as the great Brian saw. Well, said. listen, I talk, it's funny. I actually talked to a car. I met a car dealer. He watches the show. He came up to me. We started, he owns a bunch of brands, and we started talking. And, uh, you know, and basically, he was like, yeah, I'm not selling them. I think people want Teslas. They don't want EVs because Tesla, if you've driven them all, and I have, Tesla's a, just a different experience. The dashboard looks different. The infotainment system is very different. There's just it's just a different thing no doubt. Than, a, than an electric powered Audi. Well, and you're seeing Detroit peel back. You're seeing some of the European players. And that's why this was a poker move for the ages by Musk in terms of cutting prices, going after volumes. Now they're in a position of strength. And I believe this is just the next phase of the Tesla growth story where I don't think they stop at a trillion. I think there's just the wow. middle innings. People love to hate on Tesla because I think they love to hate on Elon Musk. And I'll let people decide whatever they want out there, okay? Um, is Elon Musk hurt the company or helped the company at this point? Because 
people don't realize Musk is not running Tesla. There, there, there is a management staff that's very quiet. They're not on Twitter. They just go about their job every day. But he's the face of it. He's the golden well, He part. created it. He, but there's a whole team ru- actually running the company. There's a team that runs it, but he is the hearts and lungs of Tesla. And that's what, from a brand perspective, you know, as, as we've talked about, I still believe right now that's a contained issue relative to what's happening in Tesla. The irony is this quarter, we see a record quarter in China. So th- we're not actually seeing demand. Even against BYD. Even against BYD. And Which I is think- the Chinese car company that's... Taken over China. I mean, and, and probably soon to come here. Soon to come here. But in China, they've held their own. And I think this is going to be actually a record quarter from a China perspective. I think we look out, we go into this next year, margins increase, they gain share. And now full self-driving, I'd argue the AI piece could be $75 per share. And I think that's what we're going to be talking about one, two years from now. What if it doesn't happen? What if full self-driving just... Regulators don't want it. Insurance companies won't insure it. Something occurs. I don't know. I hope it does because you know what? I'll sit in the car and let it drive me to work while I do my work. But what if full self-driving never occurs? If, if it never occurs, then Tesla just fundamentally, when you look at some of the parts, this is a stock that still has 30, 40 percent upside. If full self-driving happens, which we believe as we get to level four, and I believe they lead in that race over the next decade, then you could argue this is a stock that could go toward $2 trillion over the coming years because of disruptive tech. And going back to the Apple thesis and 08, 09 services, that's why Cupertino right now is a $3 trillion market. Many thought they'd never reach a trillion. Where, yeah, it's, it's a bullish call. Some agree, some disagree. Very quickly, Elon Musk came out today, I think it was in a, in a, in a Twitter spaces with Kathy Wood, maybe it was yesterday, yeah. I'm getting old. Basically saying that that the market, the stock market is kind of broken because there's there's too much institutional ownership and retail ownership doesn't matter enough. But Tesla, I think, is is a retail investor type of stock. And I would say the retail has been ahead of institution on this name. I mean, outside of Barron and, and some others. And I think now what's happening is institutions are catching up to retail in terms of what I view as a golden year ahead for Tesla. Yeah, I think Ron Barron could probably afford a few Teslas at this point with his investment. I, I mean, think, just throwing that out there. I think just a few. Maybe not your shoes. Where'd you get, where do you get your shoes, by the way? I get them all over. So the, do these, you make those? Yeah, so these are custom ones. And, uh, you know, I, I, I look, I think it changes, uh, it changes it. And ultimately, especially uh, what we see in tech, things are always changing. Well, can we get a picture of the shoes, guys? Because these things are, uh, here we go, Dan, Dan, stand up so we can get a little more light on those puppies. Look at this. Those are styling kicks. Dan Ives, styling guy. Big call on Tesla. Dan, thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. All right. See you soon. All right. Coming up, the final 2023 edition of our Insider Stock Buys. You're not going to want to miss this. There's some new names. Plus, Anthony Scaramucci here on the decision that could make or break Bitcoin's big rally. And Kate Kelly joining us on how the holiday blues may be coming for some Wall Streeters. Stick around. All right, time now for your final insider buying segment of the year. We are live next Friday, but because it's the end of the quarter as well as the year, we're going to go into a blackout period for insider buys. So get the pencils ready because we've got five fresh names for you. And by the way, 
Many of these stocks we've highlighted have done very well. I keep track of every single stock I've talked about in the last two and a half years or so. And the three-month average return for our insider buy stocks is 11.1% versus 9.2% for the S&P 500 over the same period. Three stocks, by the way, that we've told you about have doubled over just the last 90 days. Biohaven Therapeutics, Cerevel Therapeutics, and Telos Corporation. Anywho. So now onto this week, and again, the data comes to our thanks from our friends at Verity Data who do great work on this. Ben Silverman in particular. Ben, thank you very much. All right, here we go. Fifth most insider buying this week is at a company called PTC Therapeutics. Never heard of them, but it is the first insider buy at PTC in over three and a half years. Number four, Flowers Foods. They're the parent company of Dave's Bread and Tasty Cake. The CEO buying just over 200000 worth of that stock as well. Flow, FLO is the ticker. Stock three is Vestas Corp., another new name to us. A board member buying just, again, over 200000 worth. This is the first insider buy since Vestas was spun off from Aramark. Second biggest insider buy of the week, a $550,000 pickup at pet food company Chewy. A board member buying $550,000 worth of that. By the way, this insider has been a big buyer over the last couple of years. But the biggest insider buy this week, Chipotle. Board member Greg Engels buying $2.2 million worth of CMG, which is interesting because he's buying even as Chipotle stock hits an all-time high. A lot of insiders tend to buy when stocks go down, but not Engels. He is apparently all in at CMG at an all-time high. A lot of money and $20 burrito bowls, by the way. There you go. PTC Therapeutics, Flowers Foods, Vestas, Chewy, and Chipotle. The insider buy should return probably sometime around late January. All right, next up. Could next year be another red-hot year for crypto? This year was amazing. Bitcoin up more than 160% year-to-date. Ethereum nearly doubled. Of course, the entire crypto world is waiting on the SEC to decide if it will approve a Bitcoin ETF. Representatives from BlackRock, NASDAQ, and the SEC met earlier this week to discuss rule changes regarding BlackRock's ETF application. And the commission fast-facing a January 10th deadline to either approve or deny a joint application from Kathy Wood's ARK Invest and the crypto company 21 Shares. So, could the approval of a Bitcoin ETF, if we get it, ever, turbocharge Bitcoin and other crypto, maybe like Solana, in the new year? Let's bring in Anthony Scaramucci on this, the founder of Skybridge Capital, noted crypto investor as well. How shot, if I had to have, with everything else that has gone on with crypto, okay, with all the problems, this Bankman Freed character, a bunch of other things, and someone said, but Bitcoin's going to go up 160%. I would have said, what is in your eggnog? Because I want some. Yeah, I, listen, I mean, it's very hard to understand why it went up that rapidly for the persons that are not studying Bitcoin. But if you step back and look at the 14 years of Bitcoin, or now almost 15, uh, it is easier to understand for those people. And I've been in Bitcoin since 2020, and so... Yes, I see why that happened. And probably since you mentioned Sam and some of the other nefarious actors, they probably pushed it down too far at the end of last year, Brian. Yeah, because I do also want to remind our viewers that may not be crypto investors or follow it every day. Bitcoin was at 60,000. So we've had a hell of a run this year. It's been great, but we're still well off our highs. Do you think next year or, or if we get if we ever get a Bitcoin ETF, that high can be breached? So I've been embarrassed by my predictions in the past. Uh, you know, I, I thought it would have gotten to 100,000, 
by the end of uh, 2022. Uh, if you recall, in November of 2021, we got the Bitcoin futures ETF, Brian. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that that was going to come. I filed, uh, Skybridge filed, not me, but the firm filed for a cash Bitcoin ETF. It was rejected alongside of Fidelity and many other players. Uh, uh, we'd elected not to do that now because of the competition. So uh, a lot of this stuff got dragged out because of the regulation. But if you're asking the question, will Bitcoin get through its all-time high, I believe it will. I don't know when. There could be some selling pressure, you know, sort of that whole buy on the rumor, sell on the news in the beginning part of the quarter. But if you're asking by year end, hopefully you'll invite me back. I think we'll be through the all-time high. Uh, but I've been embarrassed by my predictions before, so I'm a little hesitant now, a little gun-shy, a little humbled. Well, listen, you and everybody else. I mean, we, you heard the top of the show probably that, uh, Anthony, that pretty much every big name on Wall Street whiffed on the year for stocks. Do you just invest in Bitcoin? Because we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm around, Still, again, altcoins are back. We talked about Solana. It's up 400%. You've got Ethereum. You've got some of these other coins that are really getting oh. hot. Makes me a little nervous, right? Because a lot of momentum, probably a lot of retail money here. Do you invest in any of these altcoins? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm still doing, when we met back in 2009, I'm still doing the same thing. We have a broad hedge fund, fund of funds portfolio that's up about 25% this year. Our, our Bitcoin exposure obviously up 160. We have a ETF called Crypt, C-R-P-T, which is up over 200%. So about a third of our business is in cryptocurrency. But you mentioned some of the names that we own. We do have exposure to things like Solana, Ethereum. Uh, we own something called Vulcan Forge, which is a very small uh, video gaming company. Uh, but Algorand mm -hmm. is another name that we own a lot of. And so so we do have some of the what we would call the altcoins. Uh, but the big kahuna in the room is Bitcoin. Uh, I have something called Casper Laboratories. I mean, those are just some of the names that we have. But you're, I think you're asking a broader point. Do we invest outside of Bitcoin into other Web3 tokens? And the answer is yes. But the preponderance of our money is in Bitcoin. You know, we're you know, we, we got there in 2020, so we're one of the first institutions to get there, but we're still institutionalists, so we sort of stuck with the quality of Ethereum and Bitcoin, Bitcoin yeah. being number one. There you go. Anthony Scaramucci on crypto. It's been a heck of a year. And yes, of course, we will welcome you back anytime, Anthony. Thank you very much, happy, my man. Happy holidays, Take my friend. Care. Thank you Thank for you having me. Thank you very much. On. Appreciate it. All right, next up. Despite all the major stock indexes being up this year, Bonus blues are being felt on Wall Street. Year-end payouts expected to be down or flat across much of the industry. That's according to projections from Johnson Associates, a compensation consulting firm. Bonuses for investment bankers in the deals side of the business could fall 15 to 25% this year. How they feed their families. But seriously, what is behind the falling incentives? Joining us now with more is CNBC contributor Kate Kelly. She covers money, politics, and influence for the New York Times. So the so the MA the MA bankers, their bonus won't be 15 million this year, it might be 14 million this year. I hope they make it, Kate. Yeah, I think they'll be okay, Brian. And don't forget, uh, even the base salary at these banks is uh, far more uh, than the mean national household uh, compensation. So I'm sure they're gonna be okay. What's behind yeah, it though? Because stocks, stocks are booming. Stocks are booming, and yet I'm I'm, I'm like, shouldn't bonuses be up? Right. That's the thing that really throws you off. Right. But the stock market, remember, is only one piece 
of the compensation picture when you're talking about Wall Street, which is actually, in terms of job description, a pretty diverse bunch of people. So the, the sort of headliner here in terms of those that are going to see lower bonuses than last year in all likelihood are those that work on deals, right? The traditional advisory business, two companies want to get together and do something, or perhaps a sponsor like a private equity firm wants to lever something up, take it private, do a club deal, whatever. The fact that we've had inflation, we've had higher interest rates, and the cost of capital is dearer has meant that companies and private equity firms are more hesitant to do these deals because it's so much more expensive to pull them off if you're doing any borrowing. So that part of the business has been way down in 2023, although we're seeing some signs of pickup in this final quarter of the year. So as you mentioned, Johnson Associates we had a $14 billion deal today with Bristol-Myers buying Karuna. It could be just a one-off, but maybe maybe there's a couple things that are starting to nudge through. Well, and don't forget, Chairman Powell said he's going to be likely doing some easing in the new year, which is part of what caused the stock market to start ripping. So I think already you're seeing some of that optimism filter into the system. But be that as it may, uh, for this calendar year, at those that do advisory work on Wall Street are likely to be down 15 to 25 percent in terms of bonuses. The picture gets a little bit better in some other areas. You mentioned the, the stock market, right? So equity underwriting, according to Johnson, those folks uh, who do that type of business, that's IPOs, which we could talk more about about secondaries and other equity offerings, they are likely to be up 5 to 15%. Interesting because this year for IPOs was not awesome. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't awesome. And we haven't seen a major deal since about October 11th, which is when Birkenstock came public. So, you know, unclear where that is headed at the moment, but all in all, those folks clocked a decent year. They did, and we'll see what happens next year. I think they're going to be just fine. But hey, listen, New York City, Needs a tax revenue. Kate Kelly, thank you. All right, coming up, and maybe the best weekend of the year for the NFL. We're going to have our picks and our beat the book segment again. By the way, up on the year, I'll give you my picks after the break. Plus, 10 days, two players, $1 billion in spending. But is it enough to buy the L.A. Dodgers a World Series? Joe Pompliano up with that next All right, time now for our season-long Friday segment, Can We Beat the Books, our segment where we see if we can outsmart Vegas and actually win on some NFL games. I was off last week, but I did post my picks on X. I went 2-1 and one again, thanks to the Bears and the Lions. I lost to the Giants. In fact, literally every week now, all my losing seems to be either betting on or against New York teams. Lesson learned. Anyway, it's been a good year so far. 25-19-1 against the spread this season, roughly about a 56% win percentage. But it's a new week. Let's dive into week 16. And our friend Lisa Kearney of FanDuel could not make it this week. Hopefully be back next time. But I'm sure she will give me the business on Twitter and Instagram. So stay tuned for that. By the way, I do love my Chargers. 12 and a half against the Bills. But I can't bet on my team. Just can't do it. But I, I do like it. But here are my official three picks. By the way, that game, the Bills-Chargers, will stream exclusively on Peacock Saturday night. Only on Peacock Saturday night. All right, here we go. This could be an ugly game. I'm taking the Atlanta Falcons minus two and a half at home against the Colts. Colts doing better than expected because they're number one in forcing turnovers. Falcons have had bad luck. They've been the opposite. They're switching quarterbacks. I think they're going to run the ball finally pretty well enough to win and cover at home. All right. Last week, we bet on the Lions. They were such a lock. But there are no long-term relationships in betting. So this week, we are going against Detroit. I like the Minnesota Vikings getting three at home. They're going to pressure Goff all day all day, got Jefferson back. I think the Vikings not only cover, 
I think they win. And my favorite of the week, the Ravens. Getting five and a half at the 49ers on Christmas Day. This could be probably the Super Bowl preview. 49ers, a great team. They probably win. But they have not faced a quarterback like Lamar Jackson this year. A complete team. The Ravens are near the top in everything. They feel disrespected by the line. They're going to come in angry. I think the line should be closer to three or three and a half. So there you go. Falcons minus two and a half. Vikings plus three. And the Ravens plus five and a half. Folks, where am I wrong? All right. Let's stay with sports and money because they they do go together like peas and carrots, as Forrest Gump once said. Because the L.A. Dodgers are splashing the cash again on another big star. His name is Yoshinobu Yamamoto. He is a pitcher on Japan's Oryx Buffalo, formerly known as the Blue Wave. And he just agreed to a 12-year, $325 million deal with the Dodgers. That is the largest contract ever given to a pitcher in Major League Baseball, despite Yamamoto never having pitched in a Major League Baseball game. The news comes after the Dodgers completed... Two other blockbuster deals last week, of course, Shohei Otani inking a 10-year, $700 million deal, and former Rays ace Tyler Glasnow also signed a $136 million contract. So you do the math, Dodgers committed more than a billion dollars in future payroll on just three people. Joining us now is sports business analyst Joe Pompliano, an investor at Pomp Investments, host of the Joe Pomp Show podcast, Billion Bucks. Even for the Dodgers, Joe, that's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And it's really, it's showing the disparity, right, between the haves and have-nots in Major League Baseball. And I think that's why a lot of fans are upset, right? If you look at Yamamoto, there were really only four or five teams that were bidding on him. And they're all big market teams. We're talking the Red Sox, the Yankees, the Mets, the Dodgers, the Giants, and the Phillies. And that just shows what teams can actually afford these players. There's a whole host of other teams that literally couldn't even afford him if they wanted to. And if you look at the Dodgers, what they've done over the last few weeks, like you said, they've spent over a billion dollars on two players alone between Otani and Yamamoto. Every other team combined in Major League Baseball, those 29 other teams have spent less than that, right? So there's this growing disparity between the teams that have money in Major League Baseball and the teams that don't, and it's all because there's no salary cap. Yeah, you know, and by the way, uh, just separate note, Joe, one of the four Dodgers owners, Scott Minard, uh, the biggest man in bonds, literally biggest heart in bonds, was a good, good personal friend of mine, as everybody knows. And yesterday, I think, was the one-year anniversary of his passing. I would have loved to have called him and said, Scott, what are you guys doing at the Dodgers with all these contracts? Uh, Scott is, is playing for the heaven team upstairs now. But it is truly amazing how much money they are spending. You know, some of the partners there are guys I know very well. Nice guys. I mean, they're, they're, uh, is this a risk of any kind, Joe? Well, I think that's the fascinating part about this, right? Everyone wants to dissect Otani and Yamamoto and say, are they going to win a World Series? And I think that's to be determined, right? We've seen other super teams in baseball fail. There's a lot more parity in baseball than people realize, yeah. right? Over the last decade, nine different teams have won the World Series. And the last team to repeat as champions two years in a row were the late 90s Yankees team. So it's not a given that they're going to win. To me, the more interesting part is what they do on the business side of this, right? The Dodgers owners are really smart people. They're owned by Guggenheim. They have uh, you know, a bunch of under in assets under management, of course, but they bought the team for about $2 billion. They're worth over five and a half billion now. And you look at what they're going to get from the Japanese market because of this. 
Otani wrote, was reportedly making about $20 million extra money for the angels when he was on that team. Yeah. Now he's on the Dodgers, which is a bigger market team. You can double or triple that. And then when you add in now Yamamoto, that money's going to go up. I can guarantee you their sales team is out right now trying to sign multi-year sponsorship agreements that are going to be all over the outfield wall, walk-up songs, everything else outside of that. Too. That's how they can defer Otani's contract because he's making so much money in endorsements. He doesn't even need the Dodgers money right now. And then when they start yeah. to pay him the $68 million a year in 10 years, he's probably going to be living in Palm Beach and paying 0% in state income tax. Yeah, I think that's part of it. But yeah. you know what? That was a little bit more deceiving than people let on to. Everyone acted like it was some huge advantage to the Dodgers. But really what it does is it delays the payments by two years, right? Because you still have yeah. to put it in escrow, and then it gets to grow with interest to that $68 million payment hey, that they'll owe one, him. One of the highest paid players of the Mets right now is still, I think, Bobby Bonilla. <laughs> he retired 15 years ago. Joe Pompliano, cool. thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. All right, coming up, some true holiday booze you can use with the Red Hot Wine label attracting one of the industry's biggest players. We're going to meet the founder of La Fête, Rosé, after this. All right. With all the holiday parties in full swing, probably a lot of them in full swing literally right now, <laughs> it is time for our Booze You Can Use segment. Where we highlight entrepreneurs in one of America's biggest industries, alcohol. Tonight, we're talking all things vino, specifically about the black-owned Lafette wine, maker of red, white, and rosé. And according to Circano, La Fête du Rosé is the number three luxury imported rosé brand in America. They've even got an investment from Constellation Brands. And last year, NBA All-Star Chris Paul became an equity partner. Joining us now to talk about it is Donne Burston, the founder and CEO of La Fête Wine. Donne, uh, smile. Thanks for coming on. It's been a great year. Congratulations <laughs> on your success. I mean, listen, rosé, also known as Hampton's Gatorade, uh, yes. rosé all day. This is booming so how do you and lafette how do you stay relevant in a in a in a, in a, in a i was in a wine shop today and i could tell you there's a lot of competitors <laughs> <laughs> this is true this is true first of all thank you for having me it is always rosé season i know we're in the midst of the holidays uh but we feel like you know it's always a good time to put rosé in your glass uh, and to answer your question, we think we are leading the pack because of the way we choose to go to market. You know, it, traditionally, Rosé was all about, you know, the housewives, et cetera. And we're putting Rosé first and foremost in front of all consumers uh, through our partnerships with people like Chris Paul and sponsoring of F1 Miami. And then now uh, we're working on a big deal with the Golden State Warriors. So we're going to put Rosé everywhere as we redefine who drinks Rosé and when. Yeah, and that's and you guys have a it's a red. I'm looking at it. It's a Cote de Provence. So this is, as I understand, I looked up. It's 86 percent Syrah. So it's more of a is it more of a bigger red? So t traditionally, you would think a Syrah is a bigger red, but because usually it makes your teeth red. Correct. I mean, you'll still get the red tannins, but we don't age in oak, so you don't get that heavy tanning. We age in steel tanks, so it's a little bit more of a silky tanning finish, which makes it much more of a chillable red and a all season red. And then the Blanc du Blanc. Very familiar with the Sauvignon Blanc. Is the Blanc de Blanc effectively a Sauvignon Blanc or just slightly different? Absolutely not. So it's basically uh, a mix of Roll and Columba and uh, Uni Blanc. Uh, so it's our white blend. So we chose to put Blanc on the front to, you know, pay homage to our origin of Saint-Tropez. Yeah, and all the wines, all the grapes are from France, correct? Absolutely. 
If okay. it's not Provence, it's not rosé for us first and foremost. Yeah, that's a fair point. Like Champagne, there's certain areas where you, you certainly you need to be at. Listen, I think John Bon Jovi and his son, Jesse, have come out with, I think it actually is called Hampton's Water. Now that I, I think that's actually, that's actually the name of their wine. How has the industry, the wine industry, evolved and evolving? Yeah, I think, listen, traditionally it was, it, was, it was not very welcoming to new consumers. And I think finally the wine industry is recognizing if the growth is to be sustained and to compete with the hard seltzers and the tequilas yeah. of the world, we have to change our route to market. We have to make wine more welcoming. It can't be this guarded industry uh, that makes people afraid to want to drink wine. So for us at Lafette, it's a party and everyone's invited. And that's everything that we do is to make wine much more relaxed. It's a party. Drink it how you choose. Drink it wherever you choose. Are you... And, and how are you are you taking share from beer? Are you taking share from other wines? Because man, you you are right. All these hard hard seltzers yeah. are everywhere. By the way, you gotta make sure your like nine-year-old doesn't actually open one up thinking it's a LaCroix. <laughs> yeah, I think for us, listen, we're cutting, we're eating into our competitive set. We're taking business from them, but mainly because we operate much more in the mindset of how uh, alcohol and champagne brands do, right? They're always omnipresent. They're at the biggest events of the year. They don't come with this stuffiness that traditionally comes with wine. And because of that, consumers find us young, engaging, and fresh, and they, they are drawn to us, which is why we're up 70% year over year versus the competitive set and outpacing our competitors in growth. Donnay Burston, uh, La Fête Rosé, Blanc du Blanc, and La Fête Rouge. Donnay, uh, Merry Christmas. Thank you very much for coming on. Good luck with La Fête. We'll, we'll check in back with you. And we're going to, by the way, uh, we're going to open these as soon there as the go. show's over because we are live. Oh, I'm drinking now. <laughs> look at that. We're, we're jealous. We, we have like pl- paper cups, I think. So, Donnay, <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you very much. All right. Good thank luck. You. Happy holidays. All right. Yeah. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Whatever you celebrate, folks, we endorse and maybe with a a glass of rosé. And by the way, with Christmas coming up on Monday, so it's our last show before Christmas, we're going to show you some of our entire team here behind Last Call in Inglewood Cliffs. These are all the people that put it all together, right? You got Nick, you got, look at, you got a couple of Nicks. By the way, Christina. Hi, Christina. Look at this. Is that your mom? It's beautiful. Fantastic. We got the whole team here. Guys, thank you for all you do, everybody. Um, some of the people you see on camera, hi, Benet, see you there. Uh, some of the people you don't, but a lot of hard work goes into this show every night. Taylor, we see you with your girlfriend. You can, she's not going to be mad at you. I, go back, show Taylor again. He was very nervous that his girlfriend's going to be mad at him. There we go. And even show the shiny, cr- there you go, Taylor. Dolphins are going to lose this weekend, by the way. And then on the bottom right is the, is, the, uh, is, the, is the beautiful chrome dome of our senior executive producer, Max Myers, the mad genius behind this show. And we're... By the way, we're killing it, folks. Have a merry, merry, merry Christmas. We will see you on Tuesday. We could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.